Uh, I can't believe. Oh, man, I just. Hey, hey, hey Dan. Yeah. You're looking kind of down. Uh, yeah, I like to tell you the truth. I'm sad because this is our last episode before taking the summer off. I mean, like, you know, who am I going to talk politics with for two months? Uh, you could always call me. Oh, man, you're never in town. And, you know, like, like, even now you're on Zoom again. And, and if, you know, and I don't even know where you are. So, like, uh, look, I, I can't afford the long distance. We'll just have to touch base in the fall. Okay, okay, okay. I get it. But look, look at it this way. After this August, we've got a huge fall coming up. Uh, there's Manitoba election. Uh, federal minority parliament, they could call an election any minute. Uh, there's even a U.S. presidential election on the horizon. It's like every holiday, birthday, and Halloween for you all rolled into one. Oh, yeah. Like, you, you've got a point there. There's enough there. We could do, like, five episodes a week when we come back. Hold, hold on there. Uh, yeah, we'll never have to write a column again. We could just do this full time. I'll tell editor Paul Simin, and we'll start booking our guests now. I, did, uh, well, it, I didn't mean... Uh, heads up, politicians and pundits, Negan and the Lone Ranger, away! I, ju I just meant we'll never run out of things to talk about. Uh, just, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Dan? Uh, Dan? The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents... In partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Here we are for our final episode in season one of Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Dan, how do you feel? Um, well, you know, if I don't, like, if I don't worry too much about what my bosses think of this, <laughs> I think we're, I think we've done pretty well. Like, you know, if you, it's, it's like a lot of things. If you worry too much about whether, you know, the people that you work for get it, if they, they understand what you're doing, then it could drive you nuts. Like, and I do, no, that, that haven't even said, I think they do understand what we're doing. And, uh, you know, like, honestly, uh, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, uh, I'm very proud uh, of, uh, of the lineup. We, we've done we quite together. a year. We've done quite a year in recording. We've taken this little podcast, which has been mostly centered around Manitoba elections and Manitoba politics and, uh, and we've kind of, you know, opened it up slightly. And and I think it's been good for the paper. It's been good for, I think, the community. And I've had people who have said, uh, come up to me and said, hey, I listen every week. And these are people who otherwise I would never interact with um, politically or uh, people who uh, otherwise may not have had access to the paper even. So I think that's good. I think we, we're driving uh, people to the paper. We're also showing that Manitoba is a pretty interesting place. And our listenership uh, from our analytics seems to be that we have uh, people listening from all across mm -hmm. the United States and even a few overseas. We remain huge in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> we we have some unknown relatives over there or something. Snowbirds, yes, that are. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think it's uh, I, I think it's an interesting experience. Um, uh, I, I do think 
certainly we've gotten a lot of traction with people in politics. We've had several provincial cabinet ministers. We've had a couple of federal cabinet ministers. We've had federal party leaders, Elizabeth May, and um, today, uh, Yagmeet Singh will join us. And uh, fascinating conversation, very interesting guy. And, uh, but you know, that reminds me, I do want to talk about the people who are dodging us, the people who won't do the podcast. So uh, it starts with Pierre Polyev. Uh, you know, which is, and I've had, I've had like back and forth with his people and, you know, like, and I will continue to try and, uh, you know, lure is the wrong word and I don't, and yeah, definitely not lure, not groom. No, that's not the right word either, (laughs) (laughs) but I I do. Yeah, we do. I think we do want to hear from him. Uh, I did try to get uh, Maxime Bernier uh, prior to the by-election vote. And then after the by-election vote, I don't want to talk to Maxime Bernier. I just, you know. <laughs> and of course, you know, we send out uh, to the prime minister, you know, yeah. on the podcast. Um, you know, the number one way to convince people to come on the podcast is call them out for not responding to us. That's, that's probably- Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, you know, with our enormous audience, uh, we'll crowdfund a, uh, you know, a campaign of harassment. Watch out, everybody. To, Watch. Yeah, and it, it should say, like, and I'm hoping uh, this will change in the fall when the uh, the provincial election campaign is on. That uh, also, um, you know, we have talked to NDP leader uh, Wab Kanu. We're probably remiss in not talking to Liberal leader Dugald Lamont, but we're going to fix that uh, very quickly when we come oh, back. I think absolutely, you know? and and he's expressed interest to want to be on the podcast too. And so yeah, and then uh, and then there's the uh, premier uh, Heather Stephenson again. Like I, I've I've sort of taken a run at it two or three times, and uh, the good news is that once an election campaign starts, for the most part. All the politicians who, you know, think you're crazy and ignore you, all of a sudden they're your best friends. I don't know what it is. I, I think that's just a coincidence. That's that's just a coincidence. <laughs> just a um, coincidence. You know, getting to the news that for this week, we yes, we wanted to uh, cover. There's a you know our colleague Danielle De Silva uh, at the Free Press has been working hard to to you know bring attention to a story that came out uh, and has not just the the headline itself. But there's little facts within this story that mm-hmm. I think are important. Uh, and of course, it's that we are at the highest in about a dozen years, 13 years or so, we're at the highest amount of uh, adults and youth in the provincial jails. Yeah. And this comes at the heels of a pretty aggressive campaign by the provincial government in Manitoba uh, to get repeat offenders off the street, to target particular uh areas around violent crime we've had uh, uh justice minister kelvin gertson on the sh- on the podcast you know one of the facts that came out of that reporting that people might not be aware of is that the winnipeg police service has been uh c- compiling data from 2022 which as we know was the kind of coming out of the pandemic time and it's turned out that the city had the worst year ever for violent crime, mm-hmm. uh, or one of the worst years ever. Uh, there was drastic increases in property and violent offenses, drug traffic and other offenses. Uh, homicides, yeah. Homicides. And then, of course, the deadliest year on record, the 53 homicides. I was doing some very minor reporting, uh, and I say minor meaning that I don't have any analytics for this, um, but that that was provincially, 
there was the most amount of Indigenous homicides in 2022 too. And so, I mean, this is really notable because uh, not only seeing an aggressive provincial government, but we're also seeing uh, a community coming out of the pandemic. And of course, with our higher Indigenous population, this massive amount of, of incarceration taking place. Yeah, you know, the uh, incarceration levels are a pretty good uh, barometer of a number of things that are happening in society. Like it's not it's not just um, crime itself. I mean, crime is driven by poverty, by uh, mental health problems and addictions, um, you know, and, and I mean, right now, like we we have an epidemic of uh, of substance abuse and addictions uh, it's driving a lot of crime. It, it's also important to know, too, that, um, the, you know, there does seem to be evidence that the this is a result of the police being more active in uh, in arresting and charging people. Uh, 75% of the increased adult uh, population, uh, and that's over 2,000 adults in custody in jails, um, they are uh, they are there on remand, awaiting the disposition of their of their cases. So this, you know, uh, it's all of these things. It's it's no one thing, it but it is a it's an insight into some problems that we have in society. And the only other thing we know too is the more people you incarcerate, ultimately, the more people you are schooling in the fine art of how to get incarcerated. You know, it's not to make excuses for people who commit crimes, but that's that's the social phenomenon, the kind of dynamic that comes with this. Do you remember uh, during, you know, at the very opening days of 2022, uh, those who are not in Manitoba or watching Manitoba or city politics, uh, but do you remember it was January 2022, very early, I think it was the 5th or something like that, uh, Chief Jan Danny Smythe, uh, Winnipeg police chief comes out and declares a state of emergency and uh, had said that they had not enough officers coming out of the pandemic then to deal with the emergency situations. And there were days over the Christmas weeks just before that, that they couldn't respond. And uh, this seems to be almost an addressing of that or some kind of way in which there's uh like I, I find that the, 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 that there's this kind of weird yin and yang with with policing in the province that mm -hmm. if they're if they were short and the answer is an aggressive provincial government, which then results in more incarceration. Uh, I don't know. It, 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 there's lots of dots that are happening in Winnipeg that seem to yeah. be connecting. Yeah, this is not a I mean, it, it should be noted. This is not a phenomena unique to Winnipeg. Uh, you know, cities all over the continent, all over the world are experiencing increases in violent crime. Um, it, it definitely is a, a byproduct or, or a consequence of the pandemic, although exactly how the pandemic itself and the, you know, the, the, uh, the restrictions that were in place in many countries around the world and just the experience all the, the death and, and suffering that came with the pandemic, it's not entirely clear what the cause and effect is. But definitely, um, we know more people are abusing substances, more people are addicted, overdoses are higher, crime related to drugs uh, is, uh, is definitely up. And, you know, like we're sort of at a watershed. It's interesting that we have a provincial election campaign 
this fall because it'll be like uh, my experience has been that even the most progressive or enlightened political leaders begin to talk about putting more boots on the street and more policing to address higher levels of crime when even when they know that really what we need <clears throat> we need more psychiatric nurses yeah might need, mental health yeah, yeah yeah we need more like there there is a program where uh, police officers and mental health workers are responding together to uh, you know to instances a lot of them involving people who are having a really bad reaction to a drug usually meth um, you know to to stop it from becoming a criminal matter to get them into the healthcare system where that, you know, um, I know that like there's great work being done by the fire and paramedic service in Winnipeg, you know, to, they've got uh, community paramedics working at shelters and, um, you know, facilities downtown to try and, you know, ease the number of people that are being taken, uh, you know, in some sort of a health or mental health crisis to ER. So, I mean, there are steps, but oh my God, like it, it seems like we spend pennies on those really progressive things and dollars like huge amount of dollars on just hiring more police officers. Yeah. And the, the fact is that um, for community safety patrol, we've been talking about the downtown community safety patrol. We're talking about the bear clan, the Mo bear clan, all these community groups uh, you could fund those groups with just a few officers. Uh, and then, but then you get into the words defunding or, or re reallocating uh, justice money or police money and, and then people's back gets all up. I, I hope that this comes up during the provincial election because um, ha- having patrolled downtown weekly for about five years now uh, with a community-based group, um, I absolutely over those five years, it's been just a radical increase of uh, encampments, a needle pickup that we've been doing just in some weeks, just radical. You can actually tell uh, when certain uh, certain times of the month, when there's more money on the streets, uh, and then you'll see the the spike in in drug use, uh, needles left around, and so on. And then, of course, the lack of mental health services and the fact that the worst people to respond to people who are in crisis are often police. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't handle their direct way that they deal with these things, not because they're bad people, but because they're not trained in this way, uh, is just immediately to jail or immediately to even some of the major uh, shelter projects, which are not appropriate for particularly Indigenous peoples in the streets who need, frankly, a smudge. They need some love. They need need a a lot of care and empathy and taking them to a, a shelter that oftentimes won't be that place. I mean, we've been really fundamental in helping start that that shelter indigenous run uh, mm-hmm. center on Disraeli freeway and uh, it's been that's been a radical uh, decision or, or sorry a radical solution for dealing with a very radical problem yeah I, I think that the I mean you mentioned compassion and empathy and you know I I recently wrote a couple of columns about what I thought was disingenuous or selective, empathy and compassion on the part of political leaders, you know, the, the, the provincial government's continuing refusal to examine uh, harm reduction, supervised consumption uh, for addicts as part of a a larger strategy to deal with, uh, with addictions and mental health problems. Um, Also wrote about, you know, uh, Councillor Jeff Berwadi's zombies comment 
like referring to, uh, you know, the people suffering from addictions and mental health downtown, referring to them as zombies. And, you know, um, and, and this is where, like, there are a lot of good things that come out of elections. Like, it focus, it, it forces parties and leaders to focus, provide real solutions. And, you know, we can make quantum leaps forward in addressing the pressing issues of society. Unfortunately, I don't think this is one that will benefit from the election uh, because, you know, it seems like the majority of people who vote, um, you know, think that addiction is not a disease, uh, you know, that mental health is not, you know, those are not like diseases. These are people who don't have the intestinal fortitude and resilience to kind of live better lives. I, I mean, I and I hear from these people all the time when I write about these subjects. Um, and boy, they really don't like to be told that they lack compassion. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I know. Some of their best friends are compassionate, you know, yeah, like exactly. what can I say? <laughs> also, this provincial election uh, will be in so many ways about Winnipeg versus the rural areas. And, and it'll be set up in that way. And I think justice will be that wedge issue because between the rural areas, which of course are all immune to crime and drug use and encampments. Uh, that's, 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 that's a sarcasm. By yeah, me. that's right. I'm just making, sorry, I'm just making a note now must travel with Negan more outside the city. Yeah. Just a second. Right. I've got that written down. <laughs> and then of course the city, which is this, uh, will be characterized in different ways. And I think it will be characterized by this issue around justice. But um, that's for the fall. We'll pick up again on that topic. Uh, let's talk about today's feature interview. We are so lucky that, uh, Dan, speaking of boots on pavement, you've been uh, working very hard with uh, the staff of uh, Jagmeet Singh to come and join the pod and uh, come on the trail with Negon the Lone Ranger. And, and uh, we, were, we had an opportunity to not just uh, spend a, a, some time with Jugmeet uh, from visiting relatives in Ontario, but uh, we took more time than allotted. Yeah, um, well, and that's always a good sign. Uh, you know, it's if you get 30 minutes, and uh, as I note in the podcast, if you can you know, presto changeo, abracadabra, if you can turn 30 minutes into 47 minutes, then uh, you're onto something good. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's an interesting time in Canadian political history to talk to, to Yagmeet Singh because, you know, he is the power behind the throne right now. Like he, he is the, 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 uh, uh, the leader and the NDP are the party for better, for worse that uh, are, you know, uh, keeping the the balance of power in favor of the minority mandate liberals in the House of Commons. And, you know, like, uh, again, it's all of this stuff is worthy for, for debate. But when you look at what they have collaborated on with the liberals and the end results of it, um, it's hard for me to say, like, people will talk about whether the supply and confidence motion uh, or deal that they have with the Liberals is good for, you know, Yagmeet Singh, uh, good for the NDP. I don't, I think, I think it's been good for the country uh, to a certain extent. We talk about that. And one of the, I think the coolest things about this interview is while um, sometimes you can get a lot of talking points from a federal politician, 
uh, we get a little glimpse behind some of the curtains at Parliament, and uh, I think that's interesting. There's, uh, if you listen to this interview, though, you'll get lots of inside uh, on what's happening there. How are their debates taking place, and then also, uh, what does Jagmeet Singh think about? uh going forward what is the supply and confidence and so uh without any further ado let's go to our feature interview with uh, a federal ndp leader jagmeet singh coming to us from brampton ontario where he's visiting family uh but uh really on the the tail end of uh and correct me if i'm wrong uh, you guys have like, you know, you're killing it on the frequent flyer side, like lots of points in the last month or so with the way you've been traveling. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We've been flying around a lot of the country, which is far for the course. And normally try to get around the country as much as I can. So lots of lots of miles being racked up, lots of kilometers being racked up for sure. And it's not I mean, we don't uh, I guess you never know in a minority parliament. We don't have an election for sure, for sure in the immediate future, but I suppose that summertime is almost a, uh, an election, uh, you know, sort of cadence, like the way you travel and try to get to meet as many people as possible. Uh, definitely. We, we use every summer as an opportunity to meet as many people as possible. And in a minority government that becomes a little bit more, there's a little bit more pressure on trying to maximize that outreach because I want to speak to as many people as possible, hear their concerns and make sure that we're, we're fighting for things that matter to them. So I spend as much time as possible in the summer as trying to meet people. So, uh, I, I mean, the, the first question we wanted to ask you, I guess, is like the question that everybody asks you, but I'm actually going to, I'm going to let Nigan uh, ask the first serious question. And I'm going to ask you a less than serious question, which is, are you aware and are you comfortable with the fact that you have become a meme in the, in the upcoming Manitoba election? You now appear on uh, um, election pre-writ advertising here in Manitoba. Were you aware of that? I was. I actually was in Manitoba not too long ago, and I, I saw one of the ads on a billboard. So I have seen the beginning of this of this ad campaign. So for, for listeners, this is a, a third-party ad taken out by a, a somewhat shadowy organization uh, where there, and there's lots of like dripping red icons and flames and other alarming imagery that has a picture of, of you and uh, provincial NDP leader Rob Canoe and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau together as some sort of unholy uh, sort of trio. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you like do you understand the point that they're trying to make in this? Like, you know, is it does it make any sense at all to you? Uh, I don't get it personally. Uh, all I know is that we've we've got for for thousands of Manitobans, we got uh, dental care for kids, for seniors, and for people who need it. It's going to make a big difference in their lives. And we've been fighting to get people a, a break, get people some relief in this really difficult time, and and achieve that. While the Conservatives and the Bloc, the other opposition parties haven't been able to point to any concrete change they've made in people's lives. We can show materially we've got people money in their pocket with an increased GST rebate known as a grocery rebate. We got money in people's pockets by helping them with their kids' dental care needs. And soon, as seniors in our country who earn less than 70000 which is a significant portion of them, will be able to have free dental care. So they'll go into their dentist's office, their hygienist, and their dental care bills will be covered with the federal program. So we're helping people in a real way, and we're holding government to account. 
We forced this government to remove the special rapporteur through votes in parliament. We've been pushing for a public inquiry into foreign interference. And now the government's moving forward with some early signs of a public inquiry. So we've shown we can be an opposition party and get things done. And so I don't really get the the point of that that uh, ad. We're we're just fighting for people. That's our goal. You know, there's a it's great to see you, Jagmeet. Uh, we 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 have this kind of uh, weird politics in Manitoba of uh, really a two party system that kind of has a third. Uh, but really, the two parties, of course, are NDP and the Conservatives. Um, it's interesting to kind of collapse uh, the federal Liberals in with the federal NDP and the provincial NDP, uh, and then sort of cake it in orange. But it's hard not also to see that there's uh, sort of a use of orange in Manitoba. Um, if we were all together in one room, we we're all virtual right now. But um, I, I have this wonderful picture that I've saved of you in this really gorgeous orange ribbon shirt, uh, obviously at a powwow ground somewhere. And, uh, you know, there's when you talk about Manitoba politics and you talk about orange, you can't avoid talking about Indigenous peoples. And I think there's kind of this interesting uh, moment in Canadian politics where we've got uh, a very visible uh, person such as yourself, who's a federal NDP leader, Wab Canoe, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, one of the very first First Nations party leaders in the country. Uh, do you think that there's some, uh, sometimes some racialized messaging in this? There's no doubt that there are people that will try to use the the differences that myself or Wab have that that we look different, that we come from a, a culture or a background that that is not what you normally expect of, of a leader of a party and use that to to exploit that and make people feel maybe uncertain or uneasy because of that. So that's something that certain people will use as a tactic. It's, it's been done before before us and it will be probably attempted after us. Our goal is to say, I think, Look at what we're doing. What, what what is what is the Manitoba NDP doing? Or fighting for healthcare to make sure people have the best quality healthcare possible, and they're fighting for healthcare because the current Conservative government has been cutting healthcare, making it harder for people to get access to emergency room services or getting into meet your doctor or to get in to get the care that you need. They're fighting for more affordability because they're seeing that the Conservatives aren't taking affordability seriously and are allowing. The really rich to continue to be fine and they're handing out lots of money to billionaires, but they're not really responding to the needs of everyday families. They're saying, hey, we're, we're up against the high cost of groceries, high cost of our mortgage, high cost of our rent. What's going on? And so they're the real the the real substance to what's going on. I think people should pay attention. New Democrats, both provincially and federally, are really fighting to get people the help they need, give them a break, give them some relief. And, and we're up against conservatives and liberals who who aren't really making that a priority uh there's lots there that we want to get into uh especially when we talk about groceries and pricing and uh but i think what everybody wants to talk about which is important to identify which is that this canadian federal minority parliament is such a different one uh in that it's got this supply and confidence deal which has carried the government quite forward and that the NDP has been instrumental of including many of the things you talked about, the childcare and, and so on. But, you know, many people have also said that the, 
<clears throat> the supply and confidence deal may cost some support for your party, the NDP. Uh, which party do you think is going to benefit the most from this deal? And uh, what do you think are the kind of lasting legacies that are going to be when it's all said and done and the next federal election comes around? Well, my hope from the beginning when we were first and looking at this idea of, of how can we force this government to deliver for people, the party that I want to win out of this is people. I want I want people to win. I want seniors to be able to get their teeth looked after. I want kids to be able to not worry about whether their family or their parents can afford to help them go to the dentist. I've always felt that dental care should should be included in our healthcare system. And it was always the intention of Tommy Douglas. And when we started the journey of, of universal healthcare, it should have always included medication coverage and, and dental coverage. And that wasn't done in the beginning. And I'm hoping to complete that. So that's who I want to win out of this. I want people to win. I want people to feel that they are getting some they're getting some relief, some much needed relief. And so whether it's the child care legislation that we've we forced this government to to pass, which enshrines the child care funding permanently and encourages and prioritizes not for profit and public child care or the dental care or the paid sick leave that we uh, we've won for people at the federal level or the future wins that we want to have, which is pharmacare and more help to build housing that's more affordable for people. The legacy I want is that New Democrats used our power to help people. And I want people to remember that that's what we do. We use our power to give people a break, to give people support, to lift people up. And and that's who I want to win out of this. I want people to win out of this. It's interesting um, in asking you to pick winners and losers out of the supply and confidence motion. I should note that nobody can figure out who the winners and losers are. Uh, I mean, just, you know, this week... It, Hill Times ran a piece where pundits suggested that uh, this is going to elevate the NDP and and uh, it will uh, you'll be uh, earning more traction with voters. Um, you know my my old university uh, chum mate uh, uh, Warren Kinsella in the Sun newspaper said that that uh, they do believe that the liberals and the he believes that the uh, liberals and the NDP will benefit more that this deal is going to hurt the Tories. Although he did call you guys the axis of weasels, which is so Warren, uh, such a Warren <laughs> term. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I, I guess, you know, and, and I, and I totally, uh, I, I totally hear you when you talk about, you know, the, the NDP DNA, your fingerprints are going to be on a lot of important uh, social programs and benefits for Canadians. And no, as they say, no one can take that away from you. But on the other part, you know, at the polls in general elections, the your party has been somewhat moribund. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, are you confident that this is a, a springboard that, that you can use to, uh, to, to get a better result in a general election? It's, it's hard to say the, what the outcome is going to be. The one thing I can say concretely that I know is that when we speak to people about their thoughts on New Democrats or me as leader or us as a party, they say, we, we really, we like what you have to say. We like what your, your values are. We, we trust you. And that's reflected in some of the public opinion polling. So that matches up. And the thing that people are, are reserved about or often have their biggest criticism or concern is, is that, we love your ideas, but we don't think you can achieve them. We don't think they're doable. They're, they sound great, but you can't do them. And now we've shown 
really concretely that we can get them done. And we got them done while not even being in government. So we campaigned on dental care in 2019, my first campaign as federal leader, campaigned again on it in 2021. And despite not having won, we are delivering. So we can show people that we not only have a good idea, like seniors in our country that have worked their whole lives should be able to get their teeth looked after. That that Brenda that I hung out with in Newfoundland and Labrador and St. John's, the city that I spent time as in as a kid, who has to make a choice between eating or sleeping at night because she's got so much pain in her teeth and she can't afford mm. to get that pain looked at because it costs so much. If she eats dinner, her teeth hurt so much she can't sleep all night. And if she sleeps or she wants to sleep, then she can't eat dinner and then she goes to sleep hungry. That is not something that a senior should have to live with in our country. And I told her that by the end of this year, that will no longer be something you have to worry about. I'm going to make sure that you can get your teeth looked after. So that to me is that to me is the, the concrete thing we can point to that we promised something and we delivered it. And when Canadians are making a choice in the next election, who they vote for, if they were worried that, well, I like the New Democrats, but I'm not sure they can deliver these things that they promised federally, we can now show that, yeah, we can and we have. And so maybe that's something that will give Canadians more confidence to vote for us. I I want people to know that they they can dream bigger, that they can believe better as possible, and that we've delivered that, and people will make that choice in the next election. But one of the things that I think is interesting, this is just my observation, and, and uh, I'll be thrilled if you disagree with me, uh, but, uh, you know, the confidence of supply or supplying confidence is, it's risky politics, if you're helping to prop up a uh, an unpopular government, a government is that is clearly the most unpopular party in the land, that would be dangerous. Uh, and thankfully, it seems uh, for uh, for the NDP, uh, the Conservatives and Pierre Polyev are making themselves <laughs> equally unpopular as the government, which leaves you guys in a in a really good spot because you're not you're not supporting a, a government that is so unpopular people want to vote it out of office uh and uh you're not denying an opportunity to a more popular party uh because the conservatives are not that so it, you know would you like to say thanks to Pierre Polyev right now for creating this sweet spot for the NDP <laughs> <laughs> well it is true too that that the conservatives under Pierre Polyev are not popular but something funny that that people often talk about how uh the prime minister is not popular, which, which in certain parts of the country, absolutely true. And, and then uh, they ignore the fact that also Pierre Polyev is very unpopular as well. And either way, we're trying to make the case that you don't have to choose between bad and worse or, or, or both bad options. You can choose someone that is actually there for you, fighting for you, lifting you up, bringing things like dental care in making sure that people have childcare permanently, making sure that people get a break with a GST rebate, that more money in their pocket. So we're hoping that people can see us as a real alternative, that you don't have to plug your nose and vote liberal or or be so afraid of the conservatives that you vote liberal or, or dislike Trudeau and think, well, I guess the only other option is voting conservatives who I don't like either. There's another option for you. And, and I'm hoping to make that case to Canadians that, that I get that after 10 years, people will be frustrated with the liberals. I'm frustrated with them. You've got the power to solve the problems that people are facing and, and don't take that initiative to solve those problems. And then the conservatives, their plan really is not surprising. The, the traditional plan, 
and openly what Pierre Polyev is campaigning on and what he has done in the past, which is to cut things. He wants to cut pensions. He wants to cut investments in social programs, cut healthcare. He wants to cut things and he's not shy about it. He's saying that's what he wants to do. He wants to cut government spending, which means to cut the investments that people need, cut things like healthcare, pensions. And he's been open about that. So those two options are not your only choices. And I think I'm not thankful because I wish Canadians had more I, I wish that the government was doing more to give people the help they need, but because the government isn't delivering, people are, are frustrated. And because the conservatives have really laid out a path that is only going to cause more pain, it bolsters our position. We want to invest in you. We want to lift you up. We want to tackle the fact that billionaires are making more money than ever before while people are struggling to buy the groceries. That's not right. And we're the only ones talking about that. And if that's something that matters to people, they want a society that's more fair and they want to see our healthcare strong and they want to see the very richest pay, pay their fair share so that people aren't being gouged when they go in to buy, buy their gas or buy their groceries. You Democrats are the ones that are going to stick up for you. It was about six years ago when uh, on the federal leader campaign trail there uh, for the NDP, uh, you confronted a heckler. And that was really, I think, the first time for many of us, my, myself included, that we had sort of seen the way that you deal with rancor and division politically, which is often to appeal to people's reasonability, uh, to be what we might call the politics of positivity in some way or some kind of way of building a bridge. And I mean, that's kind of been the tone that you've set for the past six years, which is very much to be uh, someone working with others. I mean, the supply and confidence agreement is the best example. Now we've got an issue in which on the foreign electoral uh, interference issue, uh, you're going to need to in some way work in consensus with a party that isn't interested in the process and particularly isn't interested in anything other than uh, really looking at further rancor and division. The first question is, do you think that the politics of consensus building works today? And the second is on the electoral interference issue. Uh, do you think you can work with the conservatives on trying to find some kind of consensus, even to find out who would be the uh, person to lead an inquiry? Well, first of all, I appreciate the kind words, Nigan. I, I I really do believe in doing politics differently. And, and the supply and confidence agreement is absolutely that. It, it meant working with someone that I don't agree with a lot and someone that I that I've uh, openly campaigned against and I oppose on a lot of really concrete things. Like I have a different opinion when it comes to universal public health care than, than the prime minister who's been very two-sided on that point, campaigned at once saying that it's bad to have uh, for-profit care. And then when the premier of Ontario brought in for-profit care, called it innovative. So we, we disagree very strongly. But I, I really do believe that that the goal of politics should be finding ways to bring people together, working together to deliver results for people and give people the help that they need. So that is a, that is something I bring bring to the table. And I'm, I feel a little uncomfortable giving myself a compliment, but that, that is something if I have a strength, one of those strengths is, is that I'm able to put my ego aside or put maybe my, the fact that I don't like someone or don't like their views, try to put it aside to find a way to work together. And I believe in that. And I believe that is, that is one of the tasks of, of how we govern or how we 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 lead, we have to find ways to work with people, even if we don't agree with them all the time or or often. And so that's something I believe in. And the the supply and confidence agreement is actually absolutely evidence of that. 
And then moving forward with the public inquiry, I was the one that suggested this idea that the process we need to do is one where all parties are in consensus. And I suggested a process that I used when I was a provincial member of parliament in Ontario. And it's a process that, that is used to select the, the officers of that parliament. And the process includes every recognized party has one member and every party has to agree with the selection of the officer. And I use that process to choose the Auditor General of Ontario, who's still currently the Auditor General. And it is a process that works. And, and so I've put it out there in speaking with the opposition leaders and the Prime Minister that, yes, we should be working together. There is a way to do it. And, and I'm confident it can be done. And even if there's not a lot of common ground with, for example, me and the Conservatives on, on, on really any matter, their, their position is completely the opposite. They're very much for the the billionaires continuing to exploit people. I'm for the, the working class people. There is still a path for us to, to work forward, uh, to move forward on something like accountability because we need to find someone that's independent, someone that has the ability to run a public inquiry, so a judge or an, a former judge, and someone that has no connection to any of the subject material involved so that there's no appearance of bias. And there's a way for us to do that. And I, I, I can work with all parties to achieve that. The, the foreign interference story is uh, it's a difficult one for to get your mind around because um you know a uh, you know because of the 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 mess that the Johnson review has become I mean it could have been a lot better but it didn't turn out to be very good at all but in your mind what is the story here because I'm wondering why it is that the uh you know that opposition parties couldn't come to a common, understanding or an idea about how an inquiry would proceed like like where actually would there be points of of disagreement because this is the, the whole point that we all want to know how much foreign governments are interfering in in canadian uh electoral politics uh how how can there be disagreement about that like what where do you see the 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 more subtle points where there may be disagreement about how to proceed. Well, we're really, there wasn't actually disagreement. If you look at the recent votes, we had two votes in parliament on, on a public inquiry that, that we led that were new Democrat motions and both votes, the majority of the house voted in favor of a public inquiry. So really there was no disagreement there. The only party that voted against it was the liberal party. So they're the only ones that were offside on this point. They didn't want a public inquiry. While I would say the majority of the Canadians who were paying in, paying attention to this issue, and the majority of the other parties outside of the Liberals all agreed that we needed a public inquiry. So there's agreement there. I think finally the Liberals are starting to signal some openness that that they get that that's where we need to go. What it's about to me, what what this whole story is about, for New Democrats, our position is it's about restoring confidence in our electoral system. And the reason why that is so important, the story as we would put it, is because we want more people to vote. And when there is already an apathy out there where we're seeing less and less people vote, and on top of that, there is this specter or this kind of looming cloud of foreign interference, and people aren't sure what that means, but it just doesn't sound good. It sounds like foreign governments are doing something and messing with our electoral system. Uh, that is going to reduce confidence. And for people who think, well, what's the point of voting? it's going to make that question even stronger and say, what's the point of voting? And on top mm -hmm. of that, there's other governments messing with our election anyways. So is it even really fair to 
to rid ourselves of any of those doubts that there's no there's no evidence anyways that that it impacted the outcome but still given what we saw in the states where a lot of people are questioning the outcome of elections and not trusting elections i really believe it's in our name we're in the new democratic mm-hmm. party i believe in democracy i believe it's a, an idea worth fighting for and one of the ways to make the idea worth fighting for is to give people confidence in the idea and that mm-hmm. you can get out and vote and that voting does matter your vote matters you should vote and if i could say we also have an alignment of our values, believing in democracy, believing in people voting. And it's actually in our own interest. As the voter turnout increases, we actually get more votes. For the other parties, they actually are a little bit the opposite. As voter turnout decreases, the conservatives actually benefit. Yeah. And frankly, the liberals yeah. often benefit from a lower voter turnout as well. We actually benefit from an increased voter turnout, which I guess is very ironically, cosmically in tune with our, with our name and our goal. More people vote. The populace comes out, the real voice of the people come out. And often for new Democrats, that means that, that more people vote for us. But either way, we believe in encouraging turnout. And that's what our focus is. Mm-hmm. Believe in the, the strength of our system by establishing a public inquiry that, that goes through exactly what happened, what we know, what we're doing about it, what steps are we taking to safeguard our system mm-hmm. so that Canadians have confidence. So, I mean, because the one area and i don't know if this um this comes out in negotiations or consultations between opposition parties but um you know the 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 vision for an inquiry that you've described is probably a little bit different than what mr polyev wants which is really the issue for them is uh, uh liberal cover-up what, what are the liberals covering up why are they covering it up they're covering it up and, uh, you know, uh, even though I think it's quite inconclusive that the, the sitting government benefited from the electoral interference, but this idea of the liberals are letting China help them stay in power. Uh, and uh, the, that tone is very different from the and, and, and focus is different than the, the tone and focus you just described. Are, are you concerned that this whole thing could get dragged down into really partisan, toxic bickering and not about the bigger systemic issues? I'm absolutely worried about that because that is what we're seeing already. The current process we have is one that's driven by the committee. And the committee has really shown the goals of the conservative is just to burn it all down, to to make it about attacking the government and only attacking the government and and that's been pretty evident that that's their goal and that's why we've been saying from the beginning this is not working this partisan focus on something as serious as electoral reform isn't actually doing justice to the question of what's happening in our system and how do we make it better and how do we prevent any of this from happening and how do we let canadians know exactly what's happening so they understand the, the scope of it and how do we address it so that's why we've been saying the 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 independence of a public inquiry will remove that partisanship. We'll take it out of the hands of the conservatives that want to make it about slinging mud, the liberals who want to ignore the problem. It'll bring it to our focus, which is let's actually address what the problem is and solve it. So that's the different focus that we're bringing and the public inquiry will satisfy that. And we've cited the Rouleau Commission or the, the inquiry into the Emergencies Act as, as evidence of a, an inquiry that works except for the most extreme critics. Most people look at that inquiry and mm-hmm. saw people were cross-examined, 
There were the independence of a judge making decisions about what information should be kept secret for national security reasons. They they were confident in that that those rulings, and they saw really openly that that questions were being asked, that evidence was being challenged. There was a certain rigor and vigor of that process that gave Canadians confidence. Most reasonable people looked at that and thought, okay. I understand what happened with the public with the uh, with the Emergencies Act, and in that public inquiry, I'm left satisfied with the results. That's what we want to see happen when it comes to political foreign interference. We want to see a process that's similar, that restores confidence, that has that same rigor of a public inquiry where you're seeing questions being asked, you're seeing evidence being challenged. You mentioned one of the questions or concerns around the Johnston report was it lacked that rigor, that that idea mm-hmm. that evidence would be challenged. It was really often the government would make a statement or a declaration and then the special rapporteur would just repeat that assertion. And there wasn't that same evidence of testing the evidence or challenging it so that we could get to the truth. That's going to be there in a public inquiry and it's not going to be able to be governed by the conservatives because it'll be independent. The The inquiry will be run by a, a judge and the judge will, will have that independence so they're not going to be skewed by, by one party or another. After the pandemic, I mean, let's pivot off the electoral interference, although, you know, uh, having been on different shows, that can take up so much airtime. Uh, there's mm-hmm. other issues that you've been dealing with and and that coming out of the pandemic, I think every single Canadian knows that your cost of living has increased and you just have to go to the gas station, to the bank, to the see the grocery store, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, the federal government is really quick to tax uh, insurance companies, uh, banks that were all kind of uh, benefiting greatly from the issues around the pandemic. Uh, and then now there's uh, statistics that have come out to say that the top three grocery chains across the country, uh, Loblaws, Empire, Metro, uh, increased their profits 50 percent uh to the tune of you know 11 billion dollars or over hundreds of billions of dollars uh in terms of profits uh you're arguing for what's often been called a windfall tax but i think mm-hmm. more accurately would be called kind of an equalization or certainly a uh something around affordability i why is it that grocery store seems to be your most interest versus some of the other industries that are out there is the first part of the question. And then the second is the CEOs of those three corporations have said they're there. That's not an accurate figure, a hundred billion dollars of profit. Uh, what would you say to that? Um, there's a bunch of things in that question. So let me, let me try to take it apart. One is that we, we were able to get some movement on the banks and insurance companies. That's actually a part of our agreement. The fact that, that we should increase taxes on those those institutions because they were making huge profits and and we were successful in getting that. To some extent, we would have gone further, but we were able to get that in our agreement and the, the government executed that. So that, that was done. Um, we focused in on groceries because we found that it was something that was becoming very visceral. It was one of the most concrete concrete things that people pointed to as a cost of living increase that was something that you couldn't avoid like there's other things you can you if if the flight tickets go up you say okay well i have to skip a vacation if uh, the cost of the cost of you know other goods go up you could say well maybe we can tighten our belts a bit and we won't purchase that thing but with groceries you really you don't have a choice that, that is something you it's a necessity and 
what we were finding was there was a level of anger when people were going into the grocery store week after week and the exact same item that they bought one week, they would go in the next week or a couple of weeks later and it would be unaffordable. It would be outside of their budget. So they were putting items back that they would normally purchase. They would pick up an item, put it in the, into their cart and then look at it and say, wait a second, I can't afford this and take it out of their cart. And that was something new that we're seeing. People were taking items out of their cart and they were not able to afford the same things they were able to afford before. And it became very visceral because then they started coming out that those very same companies weren't just making their normal high profits. They were making record profits, more money than they've ever made before. And that contrast of something you need, a necessity, and a company making more money than they've ever made before at a time when Canadians are having the hardest time affording it, that contrast is something that did not sit well with people. They were really angry about and we wanted to capture that the legitimate anger, that there's something unfair about that picture, and then say we can do something about it. And the reason why it's so important for us is because we don't believe in just rage farming. We don't want to just inflame angers without giving a solution. And we don't want the anger to be dis- directed in an unjust or unfair way. We want to make it really clear. Yes, these companies are absolutely making record profits. Yes. It is unfair that you're struggling to buy those groceries out of those companies. And there's something we can do about it. Governments should be stepping up and protecting people in the face of this type of exploitation. Other countries around the world have put in a windfall tax. Economists are now saying very clearly, which is once a bit of a contentious point, it's now emerging as more and more of a consensus. Even the IMF, uh, which is not by any means a progressive organization, has admitted that in Europe, they can assess that half of the cost of living increase can be attributed to profits from big corporations. And we're seeing more economists say that profit-driven inflation or greedflation is the term that we've been using, is a significant driver of the cost of living, unlike the conservatives who point to government spending, which is a very minor increase. The Bank of Canada governor was asked this question. He said, it is not at all the cause of the eight or 9% inflation we're seeing or double-digit inflation we're seeing, we can't attribute that to government spending. There's a small portion that will be attributed to government spending, but the the significant factors are the war in Ukraine, the COVID uh, supply chain issues that are still ongoing, and uh, now more economists are pointing to profit-driven inflation as a major driver. So um, that's, that's why we're focused on it. If groceries are the attention that you're looking for, grocery corporations, uh, the last question that we have for you is around pharmacare and introducing a pharmacare bill. Uh, you've made this the condition of the supply and confidence agreement going forward with the Liberals that a national pharmacare plan is necessary. Uh, why? Why is it that pharmacare seems to be the hills that you want to die on for this? particular uh, issue, but then particularly uh, by entering into this pharmacare bill, I know that it's a part of the conditions of the supply and confidence agreement, but why is it putting so much pressure? Why would you put this much pressure on the Liberal government for this particular issue? Well, we, we've we've laid out 27 items that are all a part of our agreement, and each of those items have to be delivered. So each and every one of those are the conditions of the agreement, and if they don't fulfill them, there'll be repercussions. So those are the things that we force the government to do. Really, those are a list of things that government's supporting us to deliver things for Canadians. And the reason why pharmacare is so important is we've seen a really a clear decision that this government has made where they have caved to the pharmaceutical industry in a really bad way, in a way that hurts Canadians. Just to make it really clear, 
there there's a body that that sets the drug prices in Canada. It's the uh, patented medication review board, and they requested a a number of changes that they need legislatively that would help lower the cost of medication by billions of dollars. It would save Canadians hundreds of dollars on average. For some families, it would be thousands of dollars of savings. It would significantly lower the cost of medication. And for context, we look to the south and think that our prices are a lot cheaper than America. But Canada is actually the third most expensive country in the world when it comes to medication. Our medications could be much, much more affordable, but uh, they're not. And one of the reasons is this review board or this regulator that sets the price of medication said, we need to do some changes. And some of the changes are as simple as they requested a new list of countries to compare to when setting our prices, because the current list sets our prices higher because we have the more expensive jurisdictions in our list of countries. Just changing that would immediately help us lower the prices. The government has refused to do that, even though they promised to do it. And then it emerged that the regulator said that the government is not only not supporting these initiatives, they've actually blocked their initiative. It's so bad that a number of the members of this board resigned. The executive director resigned. This is really scathing stuff that the board members would resign. And they clearly said because the Minister of Health is blocking our attempts to lower the cost of medication for Canadians. And then we dug in deeper and, it, and we found that the pharmaceutical lobby had doubled their visits to the government over the normal period of time. There was around 30. Uh, they doubled it to over 60. And right after those lobbying attempts, the government came back with this delaying tactic to not put in place these new changes that would have saved Canadians money. So it became clear to us, here is another example of the government choosing the billionaires over people. And we want to make it really clear that our goal is to force this government to deliver for Canadians. It would save people money. It's a non-inflationary way to save people money. It would improve our healthcare system. It would save everybody at the end of the day. Provinces would save money. People would save money. It's a it's a win-win for everyone. And it's something we fundamentally believe in. Our healthcare system should include medication coverage and dental care coverage the way it always was envisioned to. So it's something really important to me. I believe in healthcare. New Democrats believe in healthcare. And we believe in saving people some money and making our system work better. So that's something why, that's why we really care about pharmacare. You know, one of the, the uh, great byproducts uh, of uh, getting people like you on the podcast is we learn new things all the time. Like, and I'll admit, I did not know there were 27 different conditions on the supply and confidence motion, uh, single motion, 27 different conditions. So uh, my question is, does the NDP lack ambition? <laughs> you could only come up with 27. <laughs> that seems, I, I don't know, that seems like a lot. And I, I mean, like it's an extraordinary deal, but so maybe I should be saying respect uh, that you got more than two dozen uh, uh, individual items in there. Um, it, does, does that reflect the historic nature of the agreement or the lack, maybe it would be better to ask about the lack of ambition about the Liberal government and the minority parliament? Well, I would say if we just got the dental care alone, that would be the biggest expansion of our healthcare system ever in a, in a generation, just the dental care alone. Because if you think about healthcare, our healthcare has only been decreasing over years. It's, once it came in, there's been erosion of our healthcare. The fact that for the first time ever we're expanding it, think about the history of when 
dental care or healthcare came in, the fact that this is now the only time that we can say it's being expanded is in and of itself that one part of the 27 itself is historic. Yeah. It's the first time ever we've expanded. So on top of that, we've got 26 other things. I would say this is going to go down as one of the most uh, intense expansions of uh, benefits to Canadians and something that has never been done before. There's never been a, an agreement that's that's done this many things. We've got uh, paid sick days. That was never a part of law of the land in Canada federally. That is something that we fought for. We've got 10 paid sick days. That's a new Democrat condition of our agreement and something that we made happen. The child care was was good. I'll have to admit the government did a good job in negotiating agreements, but there were not really strong conditions and there's mm -hmm. no legislation to make it permanent. Making that legislation a part of our agreement will make it permanent and also prioritize public and not-for-profit spaces. And we all know that if there was no priority on public or not-for-profit, the money would just go to private childcare providers that would end up using that to make more profit and not really benefiting the kids. So that's a right. significant historic thing. Okay. The protection for workers that are coming up, the the pharmacare components, the changes that we made to the way we provide funding to companies, we require that they have to have strings attached, that we're not going to give money to companies unless they can guarantee good wages and good salaries. And that's come out in the clean tech investment. So we've done all these changes to a, to a myriad of, of areas. Uh, there's housing initiatives there where you're able to get money for Indigenous communities, for Indigenous, by Indigenous, for communities that live outside of reserves. And this is the majority of indigenous communities don't live in reserves. And there's really, there was no funding specifically mm -hmm. allocated to build housing for them. That's another part of our agreement that we're able to achieve. So there's a, there's a lot of areas that covers housing and healthcare. It covers uh, taxation. It covers the ways we invest in jobs. Uh, it covers environmental measures. We put in there that there should be an end to fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, we've got some of them already ended more to come. So this is a, a very ambitious but it's not New Democrats being in government. So I should end yeah. with saying this is the most we could achieve with a, a liberal government where we are forcing them to do what we need, but it's not by any means enough. Right. And it's not by any means what we would have done if we were in government. It's really given me a taste of what it could be like with a New Democrat in, in uh, being prime minister of this country. And that's why I've been more motivated more than ever before to run to become the next prime minister because I can see the difference we can make and we would do a lot more if we were in government. Well, I, I, I'm going to make sure that the headline coming out of the uh, podcast is NDP does not lack in ambition. I think you've convinced me <laughs> that, that that is uh, that on the ambition side, you guys are just fine. I hope, I, I hope also people see that, uh, you know, there's there's lots of apathy in government. There's lots of people who sort of feel that government's broken in some way. In fact, that's one of the taglines, I think, in one of the other parties is that, you know, government's broken. But it's evidence here by you just listing off things. Uh, and, you know, we could go through 27 different steps and sort of do a report card on all 27 for, for the uh, supply and confidence agreement. But it, it certainly shows that uh, coalition governments tend to work and they get a lot of things done, whether people want to admit that or not. But the track record suggests that when coalition governments uh, operate, they not only represent more people, but they also uh, seem to have a very heavy, if you look across Europe as well, a very heavy track record, something in which people can make decisions on. And as a result, that's better government overall because there's more things getting done because more people are working together. Uh, I guess that's the reality. And, and 
I don't know whether certain political areas would want to agree with that or not, but the fact is that there's a lot of things that have gotten done this time around, and maybe more so than in a typical minority parliament. I would agree, absolutely, and and I think that as a as a country, we should start getting more and more comfortable with the idea that that working together is actually a good thing. That that we want people to work together, we want people to do that so they can deliver for people, deliver for Canadians. And I don't think there's anything wrong with working together uh, as long as we can achieve things that benefit materially people's lives. And it's something that's very common in Europe. You're absolutely right. So there was a a lot of questions or concerns around something that has never been done before. There's never been at the federal level this type of agreement. There have been minority governments. There's been great successes. I would say every major change to our social system, social uh, benefits have come in minority governments where New Democrats push liberals to bring in things like the healthcare system with Tommy Douglas, uh, old age security and CPP with other New Democrat leaders. Uh, these are things that we've achieved through minorities and now we're trying to do it in a more structured way given that we don't always trust uh, the government to deliver on things so we had to get it in writing and it's been working so far. Um, you know, it's always, uh, we don't have, uh, uninteresting conversations on the podcast that we've been very fortunate in the people we've been able to interview, but, uh, Yagmeet Singh, uh, we could go on and on, uh, and, and, uh, uh, we do appreciate your time. And we also, uh, this is a further evidence that when offered 30 minutes to do an interview, uh, the Nigan and the, and the Lone Ranger podcast can turn 30 minutes into 47 minutes with a snap of fingers. So, you know, be, be, uh, be warned, uh, press secretaries on Parliament Hill, like, you know, you'll give us 30, we'll take 47 every time. But uh, seriously, man, <laughs> like, uh, uh, really appreciate you making time. Like, I know you're, you're, uh, you're working hard, you're out across the country. We always appreciate it when politicians from any party uh, make time to uh, parties take time to talk to us. So uh, thank you very much for uh, making the time. Well, thanks for the interest and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, miigwech for your time. Miigwech, thank you. I think that the uh, the sensibility, political sensibilities of our listeners will determine, largely determine, how they view some of the things that Yagmeet Singh uh, said to us in the interview. I, I think the like there is there is no doubt that. He and the NDP feel good about what they've accomplished. Uh, and, and, and laundry list yeah. too, right? Yeah. yeah. And and a longer list, I think, than a lot of people would give them credit for. I, I mean, I still think one of the interesting things is the um, you know, the battle among the political punditry in the country to figure out whether the their deal with the liberals has been good for the NDP or bad for the NDP. And I, you know, I did I pointed out that, you know, uh I think. You can pretty much find anybody to take any perspective on this thing. Uh, honestly, uh, I think the only way to tell about whether the deal has been good is to look at the the uh, election results in the the next federal election. I've I've said a number of times that uh, Justin Trudeau is kind of occupying space typically occupied by the NDP. Uh, and as a result, that's where he's kind of finding that support to keep himself in power. Um, you're right. I think we'll find out whether that's uh, we'll really find out tangibly whether Canadians have noticed the role the NDP has played. But but my favorite line from our feature interview with uh, 
with uh, Jagmeet Singh is where we we tried to get him to say, okay, who's the winner here? And he kept going, oh, the people are the winners. And so yeah. what sort of the, we talked about the politics of positivity, and I, I certainly uh, enjoyed spending that time. And I would like this noted, uh, and feel free to tweet about this, but uh, I think that's the most amount of anyone on the pod who's laughed at your jokes. Um. Well, I'm not willing to concede that, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, no, like he was a, a good sport and uh, for better, for worse, uh, I, it's difficult for me to get out of any topic without having a little bit of fun with it. And I, I, you know, and, I mean, I did present the question humorously, but I mean, there, there is a, um, I think the NDP are benefiting from the fact uh that uh the deal that they are in with the liberals might be viewed more cynically by voters if if uh the NDP were helping the liberals like like a uh, stay in power when there was a, a definite decidedly more popular option out there so if the you know if the conservatives were running at 48% and the liberals at 23% and the, but this deal was keeping the liberals in power. Then I think the NDP would get uh, they'll get thrashed, um, you know, because then then it is guilt by association. But you know, like the as the the recent by election showed, uh, yeah, we're still uh, we still don't know. We don't know, you know, like a lot of us don't like uh, Justin Trudeau. But on the other hand, you know that Polyev guy. Oh, you know, there's there's some there's some rough edges there. And uh, I don't know, like, you know, maybe this is we're really just in the beginning of what will turn out to be 20 years of minority governments. Like, it's possible. Yeah, yeah it's certainly evidence that uh, what we talked about in the pod, which was was that coalition governments do work. They may not work for everyone, but they they work in particular ways. And, and when I say not work for everyone, I think uh, it's hard to argue with the track record. But maybe the directions of that track record people might take issue with. Uh, but this is our last pod till uh, the fall. Uh, now that's a sniff, single sniff. tear. Yeah, I see. That's a single <laughs> tear coming down your cheek right now. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of work. I mean, don't get me <laughs> wrong. Like, it, like you know, uh, what has two thumbs and you know completely underestimated the amount of work it takes to put a podcast together. This guy. <laughs> And, uh, you know, like it's, I, I mean, like, and it would have been way harder if we didn't have, you know, the help from CGN, C, CJNU and Adam Glynn. I mean, you know, Adam, thump, thump, chest thump, brother, Adam, thank you, Adam brother, really, for helping. And Adam really has donated so much time to yeah. make it sound great. And so uh, this is where we send a big, huge miigwech and kudos to over to Adam uh, who's actually listening right now and, and editing yeah. as we speak, literally. Uh, and yeah. all of our great colleagues at the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, which we have to keep calling the Free Press now. So uh, we have to remind ourselves to keep calling it that. And uh, editor Paul Simin and Wendy Swatsky, who uploads our pod and everybody over there that really does great work. And our our guest hosts who came and joined with us this year, uh, Jenny Sorette. Yeah. Uh, we had, we had a whole bunch. Did you just call, do you call her Jenny? Oh, sorry. You got, no, no, I, no, no, no. But I, like, I'm going to check with her to see if Jenny's okay. 
But you know what? I like I like Jenny. As we talked about on that episode, or perhaps as we talked about in the past, was I knew her when she was in high school. I was her high school teacher. Uh, so I did call her Jenny in those days. So that's really where that comes from. But yes, I apologize, Jen Zerati, for calling you Jenny. Yeah. Well, but, you know, like, I've got her number, you know, and uh, I can, call, you know, I believe it's 8675309. Before I get in deeper trouble, yeah, okay, uh, I will miss seeing you every week. Okay. Probably crash your backyard at some point. I think, yeah, I think there's some, uh, there's some uh, deliberations that need to be conducted in the backyard around my, my, Debriefing. my uh, allegedly purportedly smokeless fire pit, uh, you know, and, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in the fall when it's more fire weather, but I mean, it just, it really doesn't seem to be the time to be having fires in the backyard. Oh, yeah, right that's now. A, not a, not agree to yeah. too soon, too soon. Too soon. Uh, so yeah, like so. Thanks. Twenty-four episodes, I believe. I That's believe a pretty we, good first season. Yeah, I think we we round out at twenty-four episodes, and uh, certainly the fall will be busy. Uh, certainly once a week in the fall, uh, leading up to the election campaign, and then interesting debriefs. And I'm hoping that once the campaign starts, and we are once again the best friend to all political leaders. Uh, the, the, they'll love us again in the fall so we can get uh, we can get uh, the premier uh, and other important people on the podcast I will see you soon down the trail there Lone Ranger happy trails to you happy trails to you